from there. So we are in a series on the events of the end times. And as always, I want to remind you that the danger here is to see it through Christian eyes and not through the eyes of Israel, which is really foundational to the biblical text. The other thing is that we can get the gospel wrong, thinking that somehow the gospel will change the world. No, the gospel calls us out of the world into the community of faith that is awaiting the return of the Lord who will establish the kingdom uh, and make Israel the head of the nations and not the tail, as he promised. Now, our primary sequencing of this has come from Jesus' Olivet discussions in the Gospels and Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And there are other texts that supplement that. And that basic sequence then begins with the last days. I'm not putting the chart up there. You have the charts. You can look at them. The last days began with the advent of Jesus in the incarnation, in his life, in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. The last days began in that process. Now, Jesus speaks of birth pangs, and that is wars and earthquakes and famines around the earth. And he says these are not the end. So they are just that labor that goes on as the earth groans, waiting for the adoption of sons at the resurrection. What Jesus says to look for is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, uh, where the man of sin, as Paul calls him, also called the beast or the Antichrist, is revealed by the placement of a living idol, an idol that is brought in a sense to life, in the holy place with his claims of being God. Paul says that this is going to be preceded by an apostasy or a falling away. Now, what immediately happens after that is the great tribulation begins in Judea with a remnant of Israel being protected, but countless numbers of Yeshua followers being martyred from every tribe, kindred, nation, and tongue that are come out of the tribulation by death in their testimony. Also, the wrath of God is being poured out on the world, and they will not repent. Now, according to Jesus, immediately after the Great Tribulation, there will be signs in the heaven and on the earth. The ones in the heaven, the sun turning to darkness, the moon to blood, the stars falling from heaven, and on earth, fire, smoke, and blood, which accompanies the final wrath of God that, as we saw, will ultimately culminate in the three woes that are brought on the earth. And Jesus also said the sign of his coming would appear in the clouds as he comes to raise the dead believers, gather the remaining live believers into the sky. He will then set foot on the Mount of Olives and destroy the armies of the world gathered at Jerusalem, ending the reign of the beast. Now, last week, we specifically looked at the fact that much of the details and the meanings found in the visions of John in the book we call the Revelation are not really certain. And in fact, it's not supposed to be. So we mentioned that the seven thunders message is completely unknown and unavailable to us. An entire sequence that we don't have that information. And as we will see today, replacement theology in some sense has obscured these texts in Christian theology. So as Paul says, we see through a glass dimly and we know only in part. 
So today I'm going to begin with one of those difficult passages that I alluded to earlier, the passage of the two witnesses. So I'd like you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 10 as the lead up to uh, the mention of the two witnesses in chapter 11. In chapter 10, beginning at verse 5, John says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be no longer a delay. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. In other words, God's going to bring all of the fulfillment of the prophecies to there. Uh, then the voice which I heard from heaven said, speaking to me again, said, Go and take the book which is in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book, and he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will taste sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Now when I mentioned this verse before, I talked about this being connected to the book of Ezekiel. So I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 3. Important that we see that these images that we are seeing have their origin in the law and the prophets. And it's important that we see that, lest we pull the, the newer covenant out of its context, which is the, the Older Testament. We don't interpret the New Testament in, I mean the Old Testament in light of the New. We interpret the New Testament in the context of the older one. Really important. So in Ezekiel chapter 3, we see these words. He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. Now that scroll is full of lamentations and woes. So it's a, a bitterness. But he says, uh, I ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to the people of unintelligible speech and difficult language, the words which you cannot understand. I am sending you to those who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they're not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. I have, I have made your face as hard as their faces, your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint, I have made your forehead. So don't be afraid of them. Don't be dismayed before them, for they are now in rebellion. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, Take into your heart all my words which I speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not. Thus says the Lord. Now, I would go on, but we don't have time. This is the preamble to the famous passage that we have all known for many years about the watchman. I have placed you as a watchman over Israel. If you warn them and they don't 
do what they're supposed to do, they will die in their sin. If you warn them and they repent, then they will save themselves. Uh, but if you don't warn them, I will require it of you. This is a statement about, specifically, Israel being sent to Israel. And whether they listen or not, he is to prophesy to them because they have that Jewish advantage of having access to the prophets and the Torah. Now John, however, in this passage in Revelation, is not told that he's speaking to Israel, but that he's speaking to many nations and about peoples and about language and about kings. That would be government. So in that context, I want you to go back to Revelation and we will pick it up at Revelation chapter 11. So, in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, he says, Then there was given me a measuring rod, like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God, and the altar, and those who, are, who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for forty-two months. Now, really important here. John is told to measure the temple and the altar and the worshippers. So that would include the area of the court that includes the uh, altar. But not the outer court, that court of the Gentiles. The nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. And this also, interestingly, parallels a vision by Ezekiel. And it underscores that without a significant understanding of the Older Testament, the New Testament will be misinterpreted. So I want us to go back to Ezekiel, this time to Ezekiel chapter 40, and I will show you the parallel that Ezekiel sees in this context. I went too far. So, Ezekiel chapter 40. Here's what the text says, first four verses. In the 25th year of our exile, so this is in Diaspora, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the fourteenth year after the city was taken, on the same day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought and he brought me there. In the visions of God he brought me into a land into the land of Israel, and set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he was standing at the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, give attention to all that I am going to show you. For you have been brought here in order for, to show it to you and declare to the house of Israel all that you see. Now, really important. What happens in this text is Ezekiel's told to measure the temple. And we'll see if we go on that he's supposed to include the court and the city. 
This looks forward to the temple of the kingdom period, and he also sees the glory of the Lord, which left Solomon's temple, come back and reappear. That's in uh, Revelation, I mean, in Ezekiel 43, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to read that real quickly to you. Uh, 43, verses 1 to 7. He led me to the gate, the gate facing towards the east, and the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. That's the way he had gone before he went out west, right? Uh, and, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision when I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the visions I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing towards the east, the eastern gate, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither will they, uh, nor their kings, by their harlotry or by the corpses of their kings when they die. In other words, their king isn't going to die. So it's important to catch this. What we see here is Ezekiel's told to measure all of it. John sees the city about to be trampled, and he only measures the temple itself. That means that John's vision precedes what Ezekiel is going to see in the coming. This begins a Again, to give us ideas of the sequence. So I want you to go back now to Revelation chapter 11, verse 3. In verse 3, after he has told him to do this, to measure the city, but that the nations are going to trample it for 42 months, three and a half years, he says this, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. And I will grant authority to them, alright? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to hurt them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to hurt them, he must be killed in this way. They have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Wow. Now, John is told about two witnesses who prophesy for 1,260 days in sackcloth, the, the symbols of repentance. They will kill their enemy with fire from their mouth, and they can shut up the rain and turn the waters to blood and strike the earth with plagues. Now they're identified as the two olive trees and the two lampstands, really the two menorah. So who, who are they? Well, very early in church history, there were attempts to identify these two prophets. And the interpretations tend to fall into two types. They're still the same interpretations, keep going back and forth. One of them is based on the things that these two do. 
This view takes them as two literal prophets. The most common candidates are Moses and Elijah because of their actions where they accomplished this very thing. Elijah called down fire and Moses struck Egypt with plagues and so and struck, struck the water as blood, uh, the Lord actually doing it, but using Moses as his agent. Uh, they brought plagues of fire and they represent the Torah and the prophets as they were seen on the Mount of Transfiguration speaking with Jesus about his death. Now others identify these two witnesses with Elijah and Enoch. They believe because Elijah and Enoch didn't die, Enoch was not and God took him, and Elijah went up in a chariot of fire, that they are likely candidates because the Bible says it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. But it's not certain that, that there's one death and one resurrection. Be careful here. Lazarus had two deaths, because he was raised back again and had to die again. And of course, there will be those who are alive when the Lord returns, and they won't die. That's what Jesus told Mary and Martha. If they live and believe in me, they will never die, because I'm the resurrection and the life. And in that sense, some will, who are dead will live, and those who are still alive at that time will be transformed. They'll be changed into the resurrected body, but without going through death. So that's not certain either. Now, I want you to um, look at another Older Testament passage. I want you to turn to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 4. I'm afraid that for many of you, Zechariah is in that new section of your Bible that's still new, and it shouldn't be. I'll talk about that. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 14, we have a parallel vision. So here it is. The angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top, and seven lamps, so it's a menorah, right? And its seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side and one on the left. And the angel who was speaking to me said, Who are these? So the angel who was speaking with me, uh, I said to the angel, What are these? And the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And the ans- and he- I answered 
a second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the gold, the oil from themselves? And he answered and said, Do you not know who these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said to me, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, here we have a parallel to John's revelation. This is an earlier one. In it, there is only one menorah, but two olive trees whose oil comes from the olive trees into the lamps of the menorah. The olive trees are called the anointed ones. The literal text is sons of oil, meaning those who are anointed. Now, the immediate context that is spoken of in almost every commentary is that this is in reference to the high priest and the prince, who at that time were Joshua, whose name means the Lord save, we we know that Yeshua name, and Zerubbabel, uh, who was the high priest. I mean, Joshua was the high priest and Zerubbabel was the one in charge. He was directing things. His name means born in Babel. Now, there's much in this book that addresses end times and includes even a vision of measuring Jerusalem. You should read it carefully. Some see in this that these two witnesses in the Revelation might be uh, a priest and a king kind of idea. They speculate that the two witnesses could be like a head rabbi or priest in in Jerusalem, and the head of government at the time being discussed. So we've got a lot of options here that people look at. The other view that people take is that this is not about two people, but it's the idea of the olive trees and the two lampstands. So they understand the witnesses as two messages or two groups. Among the church fathers and the reformers, with the assumption of replacement theology, they see the church in all of these things. And so every time you turn around, they say, no, this is the church and this is the church. Okay. Now, there is some uh, notion then that the witnesses are the messages of the church or these people groups. In other words, they represent the two testaments, or they represent the Torah and the gospel. And some have even speculated, because there are two menorahs here instead of the one, that this, and earlier in the book of Revelation, menorahs represented churches, that the two menorahs are the Jewish believers and Gentile believers who give testimony to earth and make up the body of the Messiah. Or perhaps Judaism and Christianity are the two witnesses of God in the earth. The problem with this text, uh, or this interpretation, is the next section of the, uh, of the text, and the idea that they are prophesying for 1,260 days. And the Gentiles are, are, are trampling the city for 42 months. So there's a, a serious conflict among the commentators over this 1,260 days and the 42 months of the nations trampling the city. And, and are these overlapping or are these different? Because they're both three and a half years in that sense. So are they overlapping? Are they separate times? We need to look a little further. So let's turn to Revelation again. 
uh, verse 11, chapter 11, where we were, and we're going to pick it up at verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually or mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God come, comes into them, and they stand up on their feet, and great fear comes upon those who are watching them. And then they hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up into heaven, into the sky, in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Now, when they finish their testimony, they are going to be attacked by the beast, and he will make war with them, and he will ultimately kill them. This beast is that one who appears to have had a wound. He appears to be resurrected. And so you have this, this satanic resurrection imagery that is coming after them, and they are killed. Now the text says that their bodies lie in the great city, and that city is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord, where their Lord was crucified. This is generally understood as Jerusalem in the city, because Jerusalem is in the condition of being like Sodom, and being like Egypt, and being like Jerusalem in the Roman period, where they rejected the messengers of the Lord. They won't allow them to be buried, and the world will rejoice over them, giving gifts and celebrating. Now, you can see if this is literal, there are two witnesses, and they're finally killed and their bodies are left, you can see the world's media covering this 24-7 with commentaries talking about what it means and why this guy can finally kill them, and now we're going to have peace, finally, and all of that, because these troublemakers are dead. But after three and a half days, they're resurrected, and they stand up. And then a voice calls them into the sky, and they ascend visibly into a cloud, being watched by their enemies. An earthquake happens, a tenth of the city is destroyed, and 7,000 die. God's not done pouring out his, his vengeance, as we see with these sevens that are going on, and there's one more woe that we haven't gotten to yet. But the rest give glory to God in heaven. So this precedes the seventh trumpet, which establishes the kingdoms of the earth as the kingdoms of our God and his Messiah. Now, so how do we interpret this? Now, I'm only speculating here. Remember, we are looking through a glass darkly, and we have more to talk about, so I only want to infer some things. 
I tend to think that the two witnesses are literal two people. And they will come in the spirit of Moses and in the spirit of Elijah. As God says, Elijah will come first and restore the hearts to the fathers uh, of the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, that is said, lest God strike the earth with a curse. Jesus claimed that John was Elijah if they would receive it. So I don't think that it's required that Elijah himself actually returns, but a prophet like him, as Elisha continued after Elijah in that same spirit in a double portion sense. In my lifetime, I've seen three people who I consider to be prophets to my generation. Rabbi Schneerson certainly turned many Jews and Gentiles back to God and to Torah in the spirit of Moses. Pope John Paul II turned many back to the faith that endured and which drew the hearts of the fathers to the children. He had an incredible effect on young people in calling people to love in unity. And Billy Graham, unashamed, testified to Jesus and presented the gospel to nations and tribes and kindreds and tongues. Now, I don't think any of them are the witness, but I want you to see that God has within Israel and within the Gentiles who are faithful to God, people that he can rise up and he can certainly bring these two witnesses to be greater than these that I've named. And they will be part of what Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. Now I have an alternative idea, that if this is symbolic of people groups, then we may be seeing in this context both the testimony of Israel and the testimony of, uh, of the church the gospel, in that sense, being testified to the whole world and, and, and ultimately in these last times becoming very powerful in that testimony and the world hating them and finally this beast, this man of sin will battle them and we will have that massacre of souls there then. That would mean that this resurrection is more likely a, 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 symbol of the actual resurrection that happens when Jesus comes, and again talks about it being uh, literal. But I think that's less likely. I lean in the direction of the two witnesses being two people. So we have to place the the ministry of these two witnesses in our sequence of events. And that will depend on whether they testify in the three and a half years leading up to the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation or during the great tribulation. Without more information, we can't be certain. Perhaps Zechariah or Zephaniah or Joel or one of those prophets have a key for us. We need to be diligent to read and study all the scriptures, not just a few proof texts that we can just stick on a chart and then say we've got it figured out. And we have another difficult vision to consider, the one about Babylon the Great, that great 
mother of Harap, the scripture. But that's for later. So, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer now, and then we'll open up for a Q&A. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. 